scary people in place, so thank you for that. And she sang this morning, too, so praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter 2 is where we're at tonight. Acts chapter 2. Appreciate you being here this evening again, and uh, just grateful for the time that we can spend around his word. Pentecost has just taken place. We talked about that last week. And there are many people in absolute amazement at what they have seen. But then there's also some mocking. If you look at verse 13, others mocking said these men are full of new wine. I have found that whenever uh, the church is doing anything or whenever a Christian is doing something for God, there's, there always seems to be somebody that uh, is mocking instead of getting behind it. And so uh, we see that in the world. We even see it amongst Christians. And, and so one of the charges is that these men were intoxicated, that they were drunk on and, and, and that's the way they were acting, the way that they were acting. Well, Peter's answer is well, he gets up and he mounts the pulpit and he preaches a message that I want to go through tonight. It was bold and it is direct. And so as he gives this, really, it's the first message ever preached in the church age that we see tonight. Uh, I, uh, I am a dispensationalist. I believe that God deals with uh, people in different dispensations in different ways uh, many people call the age that we're in the age of grace, and that's fine. I understand that that is the title by some. I prefer the church age because I believe every age has been the age of grace. God has always had grace on his people. Uh, so, But this is the first message that was preached in this time that we are in, and uh, so I want to look at it tonight. Uh, we'll unpack it a little bit and see what the Peter had to say and how it applies to us in some of these areas. Let's start verse number 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons on your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel, foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is the same guy that couldn't stand up for Jesus to a girl just days before this. Something's happened in his life, hasn't it? Amazing things happen when the Holy Spirit fills you with power. So now he's preaching boldly. Uh, he says in verse 24, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy in thy countenance. Men and brethren, 
Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to, the, to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Basically saying, hey, David wasn't talking about himself, he's talking about somebody else, and that is Christ. He seeing this, verse 31, before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Father, I pray tonight as we see uh, at least part of Peter's message here, we would uh, be able to apply this to our life as well. We thank you for the preaching of your word that we can read in the Bible and also the preaching that we can have in our day as men of God take your word and impart it. I pray that we would be faithful to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin with this powerful sermon of Peter. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be it known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, uh, seeing as it is but the third hour of the day. Peter answers derision with derision. Uh, how can these men be drunk? He says, only three, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour of the day. But wisely, that's where he ends it. He does not continue arguing that point. It's never wise to get into the gutter with dissidents and with the different, uh, uh, charges that they might lie at our feet because often they are just like it was here. They're often ridiculous. They're often uh, not connected to reality. It's a, it's a tactic of the devil to distract from what the real uh, position or what the real thing is. And so Peter didn't waste any time arguing that point. He just starts preaching the truth. He was going to preach Jesus as the Messiah. He's going to be very clear about it throughout this message. But we want to look first at the recipients of the message. Who was listening to Jesus? Well, we know by the people that he is uh, going to be, he really identifies them here. Uh, these are people that murdered Jesus. Some of these people, I believe, stood in the crowd when Pilate gave them a choice. Do I give you Barabbas or do I give you Jesus? And they said, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Remember that uh, Jews were saying, let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. And these are some of those people here. So Peter is going to boldly lay out uh, the case for Jesus Christ. He recited their scriptures. He goes uh, into the Bible and talks about Joel. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. By beginning his message with Bible, Peter, Peter did several things here. He's speaking to people who, even though they are not of a spiritual nature, even though they might not be saved or they might not have trusted Christ, at least they know their Bible, and some of them know their Bible very well. Uh, his words here have the sting and the ring of divine authority. Quoting the scriptures allows the Holy Spirit to do the speaking. That's why it's so important for us to always use the word of God uh, when we're preaching, when we're teaching, when we're witnessing, because the word of God is what is promised not to return void. Now, that's what's promised that God will use. What I say uh, is only what I say, but it doesn't have any excess power on it like the word of God does. So Peter quotes a scripture, and then he basically says, this is that. This is what Joel was talking about here. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Now, it had been already fulfilled over and over uh, again in the recent past in the life of Jesus Christ, and some of that he's going to touch on here. But it was still being fulfilled. 
Now, Joel's prophecy, Peter emphasizes three facts here about his prophecy. Number one, the people present that day were seeing a prophesied event. Twice, he says in this passage, <clears throat> talks about, I will pour out. I think it's interesting here. Look at what the, the Bible says here, and it shall come to verse 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Uh, twice he says, pour out. Then he says again, on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit. The first time he says he'll pour out his spirit, it focuses on the Hebrew world, your sons, your daughters, your young men, your old men. Uh, the second time, it includes the Gentiles. He says, my servants and my handmaidens. Uh, Peter's making clear here that the plan of redemption is for the whole world. Truly, it has always been of the whole world, for the whole world. Now, we can, we're not going to take the time, but we can go into the Old Testament. We can find Gentiles that were saved, Gentiles that came to God that believed. We know there was a mixed multitude when they left Egypt. Uh, there were some Egyptians that were Christians. We know of Rahab, who was a uh, a heathen that was a Gentile, and she uh, was saved. Not only was she saved, she was in the line of Christ. Uh, what a blessing that was. And so never before had there been such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not even among the Jews. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God had raised up people. Uh, we had raised up Moses, Malachi, David. He raised up Daniel and others, uh, even some godly women in the Old Testament, Deborah, uh, Hannah, and Huldah. Uh, all those women were uh, spirit-filled and had done a work for God, but nothing like this here has ever happened. Uh, what, what before had been an extraordinary event was now available to all. And still is, by the way. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a blessing that uh, we can realize that the, even the Old Testament saints did not all have. So what a blessed time this was here. What an outpouring of the Spirit. And it was accompanied by a corresponding outpouring of the Word of God. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter here gives the theme of the church age, and that is salvation. Salvation has been, always will be centered around the name of Jesus. When Jesus was born, the angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. John chapter 1, verse 12, And as many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so it's always revolved around the name of Jesus. That name was an abomination to the Jews, but it is the only name that God honors for salvation. And so Paul is driving that point very clearly here. Uh, he gives a condemnation. Uh, he makes very clear in this condemnation to the people that Jesus was a recognizable Messiah. He says here, ye men of Israel, uh, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles. Now, we have studied this before, that miracles were not just for miracle's sake. Uh, miracles had the specific purpose of giving validation to Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, so God put those wonders and signs that he talks about here, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye you yourselves know. Now, Peter boldly proclaims here the saving name of Jesus, and then he removes from them any excuse for rejecting Christ. He had presented his credentials to the nation by means of his miracles. 
because people would be able to see what Jesus was able to do and would clearly be able to see that he was somebody special. Now, in the Bible, we see transitional periods that are set apart by miracles all throughout the Bible. You'll see it in the Old Testament during the days of Moses and Joshua. A lot of miracles happen in their life. In the days of Elijah and Elisha, in the days of Daniel and his friends. Now, every time these seasons of miracles happened, they always stopped suddenly and they were always replaced by the written word. But there had never been any miracles like we saw with Jesus. Now, the New Testament records only 36 miracles. That's approximately one a month for his three and a half years of public ministry. But think about what those miracles were. Uh, he walked on water. That's a quite a miracle. Had never been seen before. Hasn't ever been seen since. Uh, he turned water into wine. Uh, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. Now that's a miracle that uh, you don't see very often. He made the blind to see. And the miracles that are recorded in the Bible are only part of what he actually did. So I don't believe he only did 36 miracles. That's what we have recorded in the Bible. But these people were witness to many, many more miracles. I'll give you a couple examples. Matthew 12, 15. Great multitudes followed and he healed them all. That's Probably a lot of miracles represented right there. John chapter 21, verse 25, as he closes out his book, John says, and there were also many other things that Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Hey, we, Jesus did a lot more than what we have recorded in our Bible. And so these people were, many of them were witness to this. Uh, some of these people very well could have been on the hillside when Jesus fed 5,000 men and their families. Uh, many of these people saw Jesus do great works. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, great multitudes followed him. These could have been in that multitude. So there was no excuse uh, to reject Jesus. He was a recognizable Messiah. And Peter is reminding them of that fact here. He was approved of God. That was made very evident. He fulfilled all the criteria for the Messiah. He was of the tribe of Judah and the family of David. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He lived as was foretold he would, and he died and rose again as it was prophesied that he would. There was no excuse for unbelief. There is no excuse today for unbelief. And Peter is making that very clear here. Uh, even maybe less for them who had experienced and seen and heard of Jesus' works. It was still very fresh on their minds. Uh, as Pastor mentioned a while ago, somebody gives their life 2,000 years ago. We do things to remind ourselves and remember those things. That's one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but here, these folks had this fresh on their mind. We're just 52 days uh, removed from the res resurrection here. So people remembered uh, what he did. He was a recognizable Messiah. And then he was also a rejected Messiah. Look at verse number 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Boy, that's some strong language. You know what? Jesus was God. He was obviously approved of God. He made himself very, he, was, uh, he proved that he was the Messiah. And guess what you folks did with him? You crucified him. You slew him. Men crucified the Christ. It was the most wicked thing that has ever been done on this sin-cursed planet. And they had done it. 
Their hands were stained with Jesus' blood. There is no escaping their guilt. They had murdered the Messiah. They had slain the Son of God. Uh, there is no greater guilt than that. And I love how Peter is not shy to give them the truth as it is. Uh, he is turned into a very bold preacher and would continue to be so. Uh, the, that's what happens uh, when we have the Holy Spirit in our life. And then we see that Jesus was a resurrected Messiah. In verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I like those words, it is not possible. You know what the atheist uses uh, to, de to uh, deride the resurrection? It's not possible. Nobody can raise from the dead. It defies natural law. It's just not possible. God takes the same position. God hath raised him up because it's not possible that he could remain dead. Jesus couldn't be dead. He was God, and death could not hold on to him. We can be grateful for this divine impossibility. It was an impossible thing for God to leave Jesus in the tomb. The reason it's impossible is because he was sinless. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus had no sin, and so he did not have to pay the price of sin. Every single one of us, if God tarries uh, before Christ returns, every single one of us will one day face death because we are sinners. But he did no sin, so death had no hold on him. Uh, he did die because he was made sin for us. First uh, Peter 2.24, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. But having paid the price for that sin, the debt was satisfied. And so, as Scripture says, it's impossible that death could hold on to him. What a message to preach to that crowd on Pentecost that morning. What a message to preach still today, that it is impossible for death to hold on uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives them some confirmation, verse number 25. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand, so I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Now this is a quotation from Psalm 16. David sees the Lord on the cross in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 69. He sees him risen and ascended in Psalm 16. The resurrection of Christ, which again is still fresh in their memory, didn't happen that long ago. It fulfilled the prophecy in the Old Testament absolutely to the letter. It would be a blow to the conscience of Peter's listeners. Think of how the resurrection strengthened even David's soul as he foresaw that all those many years ago. He would never be moved, he said. He said, I should not be moved. He would never be moved because his Lord is not moved. Uh, it's a great thing for us to be able to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and if he's not moved, we don't have to be moved either. To know that in Christ, God has conquered not only sin and not only Satan, but death as well. We see David's faith in verse 26. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. The primary reference here, I believe, is to the body of Christ laying in the grave. Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. He also knew that he would not see corruption in the grave. He would raise again the third day. Several times he told his disciples that he would do this exact thing, that he would be uh, put to death that he would raise again the third day. But because of what Christ did, the truth was David's that he held on to, and it is ours as well. My flesh shall rest in hope because Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection as well. He has defeated death, and uh, it is ours as well. So we see David's faith, 
And then we also see David's feelings in verse number 28. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy and with thy countenance. Hey, feelings have their place. We should not depend on our feelings. Uh, they can change from delight to despair. We can be discouraged from day to day. We can be happy one day and up and then down again. I guarantee you that if you put your uh, faith and you put your trust in your feelings, you'll be all over the place. You ever known anybody like that? That's one reason I have a problem with the Pentecostal movement because so much of it is based on feelings. And they feel really good on Sunday, and then, but feelings can't take you through the week. You need something to hang your hat on. But on the other hand, uh, you put your faith in Christ and those uh, you'll have good feelings as well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the, the, uh, what the prophet Jeremiah, I think, said, mine eye hath affected my heart. And some of the things that we know can bring us joy, and they can uh, give us good feelings. They certainly did David here. Uh, it's not only gave him full of joy, but they put a smile on his face. That's what he said, the joy with thy countenance. Jesus went to Calvary. When he went to Calvary, he faced a time of anguish that is uncompared to anything that's ever happened in the history of the world. You know what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says? And it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Uh, we can have joy in the midst of bad times if we, instead of putting our faith in feelings, put it on Christ. Jesus uh, knew the, the way of life, the Bible says here. He knew his way led not just to the tomb, but through the tomb and uh, to his resurrection. David had that mindset that God had revealed to him. Now verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So he's assuring them here, David's not talking about himself. Uh, you can go see his grave. You can still see it today. Uh, obviously, in writing Psalm 16, uh, he, he has died, and he has not experienced resurrection. Uh, so then David... What he said is prophetic. Uh, if it is prophetic, then it would have to be fulfilled. If fulfilled, then in whom but the Messiah? That's the point that Peter's making here. Uh, Peter's telling them that David's prophecy was a messianic one. Then he shows them that it came true in Jesus Christ. Again, the crowd listening to Peter knew their Bible. They knew what Peter, uh, they could connect this. And they might have argued with him, but it's really hard to argue with Scripture. Amen? And so, use the Bible. Uh, that's why we, uh, I certainly try to do all that I can to use the word of God to make the points that I make. Sometimes I give opinions and I personally think my opinions are brilliant, uh, but they don't, uh, they don't have any weight like the word of God does. And so we use the word of God uh, for all of our teaching and preaching. Uh, the Messiah, he gives a few points here about uh, what David's saying. The Messiah would be David's son, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn an oath uh, with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. So one of David's descendants would be the Christ. David was enough of a prophet to realize and recognize that the psalm referred to the son would one day be born of his lines. The Messiah would be David's literal son in his line, the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh. One of David's descendants would be raised up by God to be Israel's Messiah. Peter is giving his listeners here cold, hard facts. He's giving them logic because he's going to kind of back them into a corner. It's actually a, and we don't even really have time to break down the complete 
brilliance of Peter's message, but knowing who he's speaking to, uh, he did a wonderful job of preaching this sermon. The Messiah would not only be David's son, but David's sovereign. Verses 30 and 31, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now, God had swept Saul aside and established a new dynasty with David. From David was to come the Messiah, one who would sit on David's throne. Now, this has to be fulfilled literally, uh, as the prophecy is that Messiah would be David's son. So one was literal, and uh, we can't take one literally and not the other. So Peter, again, is kind of backing his listeners here into a corner. He'd already shown that Jesus is the promised Messiah, David's son, but at this point, Jesus had not yet sat on David's throne. He had not been born in a palace. He had never once come anywhere near a palace. Uh, the Jews had murdered him. They said in Luke 19.4, we will not have this man reign over us. They handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. Uh, he had been crowned, but he was crowned with thorns, not with a real crown. And remember, Pilate had asked them, shall I crucify your king? Remember what they responded? We have no king but Caesar. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus over them. So Christ had been crucified. He had not been crowned as king. So how could he be David's sovereign? Had this part of the prophecy failed? How could he sit on David's throne? Well, David had seen it and wrote about it in Psalm 16, the resurrection. And so Peter's listeners needed to see this as well. Look at verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses that Jesus was the Messiah that David had prophesied. It was an undeniable fact here. Then they had crucified him and God had raised him up from the dead. Peter had 120 plus witnesses to prove it. Everyone knew that Peter was telling the truth here. The resurrection of Jesus was now common knowledge in Jerusalem as it had happened just less than two months before. Now Peter gives a warning attached to it, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So they crucified Jesus. God had crowned him. They had entombed him. God had enthroned him. They had cast him out. God had caught him up. They had executed him. God had exalted him. This is how Peter uh, wraps up this first sermon the, uh, that, that he's preaching here in this age. You had better take this serious, he's saying, the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Not only does he plunge in the knife, but he gives it a good twist uh, with that final statement there. He has a condemnation that he gave them. He has confirmation. And now this gives place to consolation. Uh, look at the agony of conviction that took the crowd uh, when he's preaching. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This is conviction setting in. The enormity of their sin and their guilt is heavy on them. Conviction is the Holy Spirit's first work on the human heart. That's how, he, that's how we first get saved. We're convicted of our sin. He convicts of sin. He convicts of righteousness. He convicts of judgment, uh, the nature of sin, the need for righteousness, and the nearness of judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit uh, brings on. I love, you've probably seen it too if you've witnessed to people, and, and uh, sometimes you can give the gospel 
and it falls on a heart as hard as rock and there's no reception, there's no interest. And then another time you see as you preach or give or witness the gospel to someone and uh, you can see the Holy Spirit working in their heart. I've seen uh, even from up here, uh, white knuckles as people hold on to the pew or hold on to the seat in front of them. Uh, you can see that conviction working in people's heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He lays people bare before God. He shows them who they are and what they have done. He shows them their rejection of Christ. They then become, if they are convicted, become desperate in their lost condition. I do not believe there was genuine conversion without first experiencing genuine conviction. I believe that conviction is necessary for conversion. That's the whole point of Peter's sermon here, producing conviction in his listeners. May I say I believe that's the goal of every good preacher, is to produce conviction in the listeners. Not conviction in what I bring, but conviction from the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is so important uh, for us to use. The Jews reacted. I think it's interesting what their question was. They asked if there was something that they could do. See the question? Men and brethren, verse 37, what shall we do? This is an amazing question. Remember what they did? They crucified Jesus. They murdered the Messiah. Uh, they spat in the face of the Son of the living God. And now they wanted to know what can we do uh, to make amends, essentially. As crazy as this seems, not much has changed today. People still think and they act on the assumption that there's something they can do to undo the sin in their life. And the truth of the matter is, there's nothing we can do to undo our sin. Yet they ask the question, what can we do? Well, Peter answers the question the, in, in his uh, answer to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> That's the answer to man's sin problem. Repent. We need to repent. This is the message that was given all the way back by John the Baptist. Repent. The order of salvation here in this verse is important, and both of these were very important. I think it's interesting that Peter included uh, being baptized. Now, this is not part of salvation, but being uniquely in this crowd, I think that baptism was especially important for them uh, because they were the people primarily responsible for the crime of Calvary. The Hebrew nation was a nation without excuse. He's already talked here of judgment that's coming on them. So the first step for the people here was to separate themselves from this horrendous national sin of crucifying the Messiah. There are two preliminary steps to that. The first one is repentance, and then there is uh, he brings up as well baptism. Back to John again's original message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4.17. They knew their history. The leaders of Israel had rejected John. Now they had murdered Jesus. The people standing there on Pentecost uh, stood beneath the shadow of Calvary. They needed to repent. Uh, repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is a turning away from previous actions. That's what repentance is. Uh, some people today preach uh, the... A, uh, a grace-heavy message in which it said you don't have to repent, you just have to believe. Uh, well, the Bible says, Jesus said it twice, except you repent, you shall in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is pretty important. And uh, this movement that, uh, that uh, pushes that thought uses only the book of John. And they'll say that the book of John is God's gospel tract to the world. And it is 
uh, the book of John is a gospel tract in and of itself. Uh, but it's not the only book in the Bible. And yes, repentance isn't found in John, different message for different people, but uh, the message was given clearly by Jesus that repentance is necessary. Uh, they also go as far as to say that repentance is a work. Repentance is not a work. Repentance, again, is a change of mind. Uh, I'll give you just a classic example. I believe that, that it is sinful for people to live together before marriage. I don't think that that's in God's plan. I don't think that that uh, pleases the Lord at all. Uh, yet, how many times I have witnessed to couples who are living together, not married, but living together, and uh, give them the gospel, they have no idea or no conviction at all that what they're doing is wrong. And that's, that's not what I hit first anyway. They need to be saved, all right? That's the first need of everybody. And so when we talk to them, we lead them. Because it just happened two years ago. I led a, a girl to Christ down in Madison and... and uh, they were living together. He got saved, then she got saved. And then uh, after they started coming to church, it was then that I started to talk to them about their living condition. And uh, they, they did make it right. They did get married and, and, uh, and have a, a great family today. And, and so that was the steps that they took. But the point of using for repentance, uh, there was at no point in their mind were they thinking what they were doing is sinful. But then repentance took place. All of a sudden... They now change their mind and agree with God that what I am doing is a sin. That's repentance. We, we all really are in some area of that in our life before we're saved. We don't realize what we're, we don't think about it. We don't give any thought to the fact that what we're doing is sin. But then we agree, repentance really is agreeing with God about my sin. That's what repentance is. When we recognize that, then we come to Christ and get forgiveness for that sin and hopefully change our behavior. But their repentance here, uh, Peter goes a step further, their repentance has to be expressed just as publicly as their sin. Remember, they are representing a people who Peter just said, you, you're responsible for crucifying Christ. He showed who he was, and then you crucified him. You murdered the Messiah. Now, the way to make their, uh, their decision public was by baptism. Uh, the baptism was to be in the name of who? In the name of Jesus Christ. So this would make very clear, and I think it's important that we do the private salvation. Baptism is not a part of salvation, but baptism would be a very public statement of the repentance that took place in their heart. It's very true even today. We have, <clears throat> we have a couple of kids that are coming on our bus that have gotten saved through our bus ministry, and parents do not let them get baptized because of different uh, affiliations of religion. That No problem with salvation. Whenever a kid gets saved, we go to the house, we explain it to the parents what happened to the child and, and uh, use it as an opportunity to witness. And that's great. Oh, that's wonderful, Pastor. They made a, a decision for Jesus. But when you bring up baptism, a whole different animal. Uh, I believe that it's important as an obedience uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would become baptized because that's part of the command that he gives us. Uh, but there could be no hedging here on this issue for these people. It was absolutely essential uh, that they... Uh, after they got saved, would be baptized publicly to proclaim their faith in Christ. I still believe that baptism is very essential for us today. And uh, obviously, as you see, we put a lot of focus on it, a lot of emphasis on it here. Uh, I'm grateful to be uh, part of a work to where we regularly do baptize people because that is an important part of uh, the, it is part of the Great Commission, actually, is that we uh, win them, wet them, and teach them. Amen? can't find a W word for teach, brother. You got to help me out with that. Okay, 
wonderful. All right, we'll go with that. But uh, that's a part of our, uh, our mission here. So Peter spoke boldly. He spoke plainly. He gives them the gospel. And then uh, they respond in conviction. And he tells them what they need to do. That's a good day. Amen? It's a good day when you have the word of God go forth, the people receive it, and then uh, for them to respond. Uh, look at verse 41, and we'll get into this next week. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What a day. What a day this day of Pentecost was. What God can do with some committed men who use his word and preach the truth and just give the truth. And so let's be a part of that even uh, in our church as well. Father, we